Neuropathways, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals exploring the latest research discoveries and clinical advances in the fields of neurology, psychiatry, neurosurgery, and neurorehab. In the fall of 2019, ethicists from six major academic medical centers published an article in the Journal of Clinical Ethics on the emerging role of clinical ethicists. They argued that rapid changes in healthcare delivery, outcomes, and patient expectations increasingly demand that clinical ethicists be integrated into the interdisciplinary teams that routinely serve patients. The recommendation applies to all specialty areas, including neurology and neurosurgery. In today's episode of Neuropathways, we're discussing the bioethics issues that face neurologists and neurosurgeons in practice today, as well as the unique approach Cleveland Clinic takes to support patients and providers. I'm your host, Alex Ray Grant, neurologist in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute, and I'm pleased to be joined by Lauren Sankery for today's conversation. Lauren is Associate Director of the Neuroethics Program and Neuroethics Staff in a joint appointment between Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute and Center for Bioethics. Lauren, welcome to Neuropathways. Thank you for having me. Lauren, you hold a Juris Doctor degree, and it's a very unique degree for your role. So let's start off finding a bit more about your path to this role. How has your career led you to a profession in bioethics and neuroethics specifically? So I found my way to healthcare ethics relatively early in my career, and I chose to study law uh, in part out of recognition that that fear of liability can sometimes complicate communication in healthcare. Um, and while the law provides a framework for some of the minimum obligations that we owe patients, uh, at the same time, bioethics goes beyond those basic obligations to help clinicians figure out how to fully discharge some of the more complex obligations and aspirations clinicians have in treating patients. So I was attracted to ethical challenges in neuroethics specifically, uh, given the added uncertainty that, that sometimes accompanies prognosis in neurology um, and the, the importance of our brain to our ability to communicate about uh, what matters most to us as individuals. So you have a very um, strong role in the ethics program of neuro neurology and neurosurgery. Can you tell me and the listeners more about the role you play in the care of neurology and neurosurgery patients at Cleveland Clinic? Sure. So as a, a clinical ethicist with a specialization in neuroethics, I provide ethics consultation both in the inpatient and outpatient settings at the Cleveland Clinic. The majority of my work is, is in conjunction with our epilepsy center and our center for neurological restoration, um, which is uh, the group that provides deep brain stimulation for patients with Parkinson's disease and some other conditions. Uh, so I'm embedded in, in both medical and neurosurgery teams here. And I support these teams in, in both some of the common day-to-day -day, uh, issues that come up in, in practicing neurology or neurosurgery, um, but also some surgery-specific questions that come up when people are making difficult decisions about neurosurgery. Maybe let's start with some of the more typical ethical issues that come across your transom here. What, what kinds of typical things do you end up uh, working on in these groups? Sure. So on the medical side, a more common issue that comes up um, of neurology um, is when a neurologist is asked by a patient or their family member not to document some aspect of a patient's diagnosis. Uh, so sometimes they're faced with difficult challenges if a patient is concerned about being able to continue to drive um, and might ask their neurologist not to document a diagnosis of epilepsy. 
uh, providers have to weigh some of the costs and risks, as well as the benefits of being transparent in documentation about diagnosis. Any other more common things that come up in ethics practice? So other common challenges that come up uh, arise when, when a therapy carries significant risks but also might offer benefit to a patient. And so if a clinician is trying to think through whether or not to offer, um, let's say, a neurosurgical uh, risk section in the context of epilepsy, and there are, there are cognitive risks to the surgery, but also uh, this is a, a surgery that may help a patient become seizure-free or dramatically reduce the number of seizures they're experiencing. Um, I've supported patients in, in thinking through whether that surgery is right to them. And even before it's offered, I've supported clinicians in, in making the really tough decision about whether uh, it's consistent with our values as a center and um, with their values as clinicians to offer the surgery in the first place. So one of the areas that you get involved is the particular neurosurgery called neuromodulation. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you get involved in that and what, in fact, patient population we're talking about with neuromodulation? Sure. Most commonly, um, deep brain stimulation is offered to patients with Parkinson disease or essential tremor. Um, and often um, those decisions about whether a patient is a surgical candidate um, can become complex if they have some medical comorbidities or psychiatric comorbidities um, that make people worry about whether it's safe to perform the procedure or whether that patient will be able to put up with some of the burdens of programming for the, the deep brain stimulation devices. Another consult that's come up is if somebody has some pre-existing cognitive impairments or some, some early stage dementia and the cognitive risks of deep brain stimulation are, are increased for that patient, uh, then, then there are times that the group feels it's ethically supportable to offer deep brain stimulation to that patient. but they might worry the patient needs a bit more support in thinking through whether it's right for them. So let's get a little more granular. Can you walk us through what kind of process you would use in such a consultation? I mean, who would you talk to? What would you say? What would you hear? Just so our, our audience understands a little more clearly what it is you end up doing in a consultation. So usually I attend every patient management conference in which a group of clinicians from many disciplinary backgrounds are discussing whether or not a patient is a good candidate for uh, deep brain stimulation surgery in this context. Uh, so I'm listening in on those discussions um, and I'll speak up about sometimes it's a, a social situation that has some ethical ramifications for a decision about deep brain stimulation. And so I'll provide some guidance in those discussions um, and then if it, it seems like it might be helpful for me to meet directly with a patient, uh, usually I'm sitting down with a patient and whoever their loved ones are who they'd like to be involved in those discussions and talking to them about what activities they find most meaningful, what hopes they have in undergoing surgery, what expectations they have about the therapeutic benefit they might get from surgery, and also discussing whether they understand the risks and whether they appreciate the drawbacks of deciding to undergo a surgery that carries some significant risks. It's interesting in medicine, I, I frequently talk to patients and families about risk and I think I've communicated pretty clearly and then I ask them to tell me what I said and often what, what they hear is quite different than what I said. You must experience that, that people maybe don't really realize what they're getting into even though they've been told it. Is that, is that a fair statement? 
Absolutely. And, and usually once I'm speaking with a patient, they've heard this from, from multiple clinicians um, with different backgrounds who've probably explained in slightly different ways what they're about to undergo. I think one thing I've realized is that people sometimes take a little bit of time and some repetition to really pick up what they need to understand about something as complicated as, as a neurosurgery and even simpler procedures in medicine. Um, and so accepting those limitations but also focusing in more on, on whether that patient appreciates what undergoing that procedure might mean in their daily life is what I'm more concerned that they understand. Very good. Let, let's change the subject a little bit. So in 2017, you were awarded a three-year grant from the NIH Brain Initiative. Can you tell us about that and how that plays into your work with neurosurgery patients? Sure. So in my research, I had the chance to explore some unique ethical issues that arise as research participants exit from clinical trials of investigational brain implants, such as deep brain stimulators, as they're investigated in different indications than Parkinson's disease. Um, and so I've used qualitative methods to try to learn from the experiences of research participants in early phase research. And this has kind of helped me formulate some recommendations for clinical investigators who are, are conducting cutting-edge neurosurgical research. I had a little experience hearing about qualitative methodology. Perhaps our audience may not have a lot of experience with that. What kind of things would you study or pull from the patient and family in, in a qualitative methodology approach? So qualitative methods draw from sociology and anthropology. Um, and the, the methods I've used generally have been semi-structured interviews where you're asking relatively open-ended questions, uh, where there's, there's not a quick yes or no answer, um, but where you're really letting uh, a patient or their family um, share about experiences they have um, and guide the conversation. And this has really helped me understand things about how they, let's say, processed information they heard in an informed consent process uh, for some of this device research. Uh, and it's also helped me understand some of the challenges they experienced while being in a research study. Um, so usually qualitative methods can help us get at uh, answers that are difficult to get by just administering a, a survey study where someone can give a response that's on a scale of one to 10. So let's shift gears a little bit. You know, I know at the Cleveland Clinic, it's a very large tertiary care center, and we, we see some unique situations. Can you share some of the kinds of things that you've seen which are a little more unusual that were maybe not quite common garden? Yeah, I've helped to support uh, patients who have cognitive limitations um, in non-standard consent processes, let's say for an innovative uh, or off-label neurosurgical procedure. Um, and supported uh, families in navigating these decisions when there's not a lot of really great data uh, to point them to to help them understand the risks or benefits of a specific procedure. Um, I've also supported uh, clinicians in navigating um, decision-making when a patient has both a neurological condition but also a, a comorbid mental health condition or a functional neurological disorder. Um, and sometimes there is complexity in, in first communicating about um, both their organic and functional diagnosis uh, and helping to, to craft a treatment plan that um, addresses both those functional or, or psychogenic needs as well as some of their, their needs for biological interventions. 
So I, I think most of our audience is pretty experienced with ethics consults in the inpatient hospital setting, but you're, you're embedded in a, in a couple of the institutes within the Neurological Institute, uh, and so you, you really see some of the outpatient world as well. Can you, can you speak to that a bit, some of the ethical things that might come up in the outpatient clinics that you serve? Sure, some of those issues uh, might feel very routine. In the outpatient setting, clinicians tend to still feel pressed for time, but may be supporting patients uh, in making decisions that aren't as urgent as they might be in the inpatient setting. Uh, so for instance, neurologists caring for patients with ALS may be trying to support a patient in, in just accepting a, a difficult to accept diagnosis, an emotionally uh, complicated uh, diagnosis, but at the same time trying to help patients be aware of decisions they might face in the future. Uh, for instance, decisions about tracheostomy that may arise in the future. And I find that, that in an outpatient setting, clinicians are trying with limited time to prioritize the most important discussions that need to be had in an outpatient setting. And I feel that some of my work in an outpatient setting can alleviate some of that time pressure. Uh, so if advanced care planning is a conversation that uh, doesn't fit in uh, to a short outpatient visit, I sometimes have the, the luxury of a little bit more time to spend with patients uh, to just focus on some of those, those upcoming decisions that a patient or family might want support with. Before we close, I, I think one of the things to maybe share with our listeners is any tips or pointers on you know, when they're across the table from a patient or family and they're feeling ethical issues boiling up, any approaches they might take in their practice that might help out with that situation? One important thing to keep in mind is that often we're working with relatively imperfect information when we're communicating in a healthcare setting. Um, and I think that sometimes it can actually take pressure off in communication that's difficult to just acknowledge. We don't have perfect knowledge about what treatment might be best for any individual patient. I also think it can be helpful for those of us who work in healthcare to think about some of the assumptions we bring to our practices. I think that I've observed just in interacting with patients that I have biases myself in terms of wanting as much information as possible in order to make decisions. Uh, where I've met patients who've, who've told me that uh, getting a lot of information can be incredibly stressful for them. Um, and it can be really helpful to get clear guidance from their clinicians. Uh, so that was an assumption that I brought into my work in healthcare that um, I've really learned to check. And so I think it can be really helpful just to think carefully about, about what biases or assumptions uh, we might carry, um, not in a harmful way um, or in, in an explicitly a negative way, but that might inform the way that we interact with patients on a day-to-day -day basis. And certainly it seems as if different patients and families have different ways of thinking through decision-making, and it, it becomes quite personalized, doesn't it? It does, and I think it can actually be incredibly helpful to directly ask patients, how do you normally make important decisions in your life? Who do you usually talk to when you're thinking through difficult decisions or, or thinking about your health and treatments that might be right for you. Uh, so I'd encourage clinicians to, to ask that directly and ask patients how they best like to receive information so that we can personalize care in that way. Well, good. Is there anything else that you'd want to share with our audience about 
the role of bioethics in neurosciences and anything else that we should tell them? I think it's a, a relatively new field um, and that ethics expertise can, can help you think through uh, different options that you have or, or different courses of action that you can take um, and think through carefully what consequences accrue with each different course of action that you have. So I think it can help us think carefully about some of what, what we do in healthcare and, and in a research setting as well. Very good. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for joining us today. And it's been a very illuminating conversation. Thank you. This concludes this episode of Neuropathways. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash neuropodcast, or subscribe to the podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from experts in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute on our Consult QD website. That's consultqd.clevelandclinic.org neuro, or follow us on Twitter at MD. all one word, that's at MD on Twitter. Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon.